This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, Michelle Goodwin talks about her experiences of racism in daily life in Minneapolis before she became Chancellor's Professor of Law at UC Irvine. Also, removing statues from the Capitol building, honoring traitors and defenders of slavery, there's one that's been overlooked, Chief Justice Roger B. Tawney. Plus, TV This Week. Ella Taylor talks about the rise of fascism as seen on the HBO series Babylon Berlin, plus the new Corey Ada film The Truth, starring Catherine Deneuve. First up, our coronavirus political update. For comment and analysis, we turn to David Dayen. He's executive editor of the American Prospect. We've seen him all over the place. Uh, he writes a daily report on coronavirus political news. It's called Unsanitized at prospect.org. I read it every morning. David Dayen, welcome back. Thank you. Well, the big news about coronavirus, of course, is the spike in new cases in Los Angeles since Memorial Day. This seems scary to me, and July 4th weekend is coming. For the second consecutive day on Wednesday, California broke a record for the most cases reported in a single day, 8,610 new cases. And the percent of coronavirus tests coming back positive in California continues to rise. It hit 6% on Tuesday. A week earlier, it was around 5%. The week before that, it was, a, <clears throat> it was around 4%. That's an indication that the, that the disease spread is worsening. A lot of people want to go to bars. A lot of people want to go to the beach, especially young people. What's going to happen to the coronavirus in Los Angeles? You know, Governor Newsom has taken some steps, uh, closing up bars in several counties, including Los Angeles, and uh, minimizing activities for the 4th of July. Uh, there's, a, there's a theory out that, that Memorial Day really kicked off this new wave. And uh, because of the gatherings, many of them indoor gatherings that it took place, for 4th of July, they are closing beaches and, uh, and, and canceling fireworks displays, which uh, I'm not sure is, is actually a good solution to this problem. I mean, uh, we were we're fairly confident that outdoor spread of the virus is, is not, it, it, it might not be impossible, but it's certainly less possible than uh, indoor gatherings. And if you get rid of the beaches and you get rid of the fireworks displays, where are people going to congregate? Probably inside. So I'm not sure that that's the best solution, uh, but there's clearly a, an, an, an effort on the part of uh, state and local officials to stop people from congregating. And I, I think that the fact that the spread has, has gone up to such a degree here in Los Angeles uh, might lead people to do this on their own to a certain extent. The problem is it doesn't take that many people congregating to get uh, an increase in the spread. The problem, of course, is running out of hospital beds and ICU beds. When this whole thing started back in um, late March and early April, LA sort of went all out. They brought up that Navy hospital ship, the Long Beach Harbor. They 
said they were converting the convention center to an emergency hospital. The billionaire owner of the LA Times bought a closed hospital and converted it to a COVID-19 hospital. Many local hospitals, I'm sure you remember, put up big tents to house overflow patients. Most of that was never used in the initial wave. The tents are gone. I don't know if the convention center is still set up. So there's, there is a threat right now of running out of ICU beds. At the moment, but I mean, I think that mobilization can happen again. And now that it's been done once, could probably happen pretty quickly. So there is some surge capacity, but uh, we do see hospitalizations going up. Uh, We have not really seen a commensurate rise in deaths as of yet, both in Los Angeles and around the country. But, you know, it's interesting to think about what that means for the future. If this is something that younger people are now contracting at higher numbers, it may mean lingering effects of the disease long into the future for younger people. And maybe you know, we have no idea. Is this going to last people's entire lives? Are they going to have diminished capacity on on lung output or uh, heart disease or all of the kinds of things that go forward? It seems like it's uh, an ongoing public health situation that we really haven't contemplated how we're going to manage. Up to now, about half the deaths, at least in California, are still in nursing homes. It's really the people in their 80s who have, you know, other health problems that are dying. Yeah, absolutely. And, and part of that was because of mistakes and failures at the beginning of returning sick patients into nursing homes, which only grew the spread throughout these facilities uh, with very vulnerable people. So I think we're getting a little bit smarter about that. And and also we have better therapies and treatments, at least in the near term, things like remdesivir and uh, dexamethasone that uh, have the ability to lower hospital stays and also reduce deaths, uh, respectively. Let's talk about uh, remdesivir. It has had some success, apparently, not exactly in curing the disease, certainly not in preventing the disease, but in reducing the length of hospital stays. It's not a new drug. It was developed as a treatment for Ebola virus in 2015 by a company called Gilead. How much does remdesivir cost right now? Well, they actually just released that figure. It it will cost for hospitals on an average 10-day treatment $3,120. The cost of a course of treatment is $3,120. What's the cost of producing remdesivir? That would be about 10 bucks for a 10-day treatment. And, uh, you know, of course, what pharmaceutical companies say is, oh, but we have to account for our research and development and all of the things that go into making the drug to begin with. However, remdesivir benefited from a $70 million grant from the U.S. government that, that participated in the R&D. So uh, we, we paid for the, the development of this drug, and we're also paying uh, the, the elevated cost. Now, hospitals pay it, and, and how that filters down to the patient is you know, completely unclear. But uh, if there are more costs in the system for insurers, you can bet that insurers will figure out a way to recoup those costs. And ultimately, we all pay this this elevated price. 
So what would uh, what would a fair price be? It, it's, it should be higher than $10 and lower than $3,120. Has anybody tried to figure this out? And there was a report that came out that I reported on in Unsanitized that said, okay, if you look at how much the hospital stays reduce, you're probably at around a value of maybe $400 for that treatment. So, so that spread, how do we deal with that spread and how do we get a, 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 you know, a fair price? There is a way, uh, it's, it's section 1498 of the US code, which you can best describe it as almost eminent domain for patents. So the way that we do drug pricing in the United States is that the, the, the US government gives a patent to a drug company to have exclusive rights to sell that drug for a number of years to allegedly recoup this R&D cost. And then drug companies can charge whatever price they want. There are no limits to what drug companies can charge. Well, that patent is granted by the US government and under section 1498, if they see the cost as unreasonable, they can take back that patent. And they can, you know, much like in eminent domain, they, they give just compensation to the uh, drug company for the seizure of that patent. And then they can relicense it to companies that are generic drug makers that uh, promise to hold it within certain price guidelines. Now, so, let, me, let me interrupt here and ask the inevitable question. Is our next president, Joe Biden, capable or likely to do this? Well, what's interesting is that there was kind of a boomlet within the Democratic primary talking about this idea as a method to lower drug prices. And in fact, the two, I would say, most likely uh, vice presidential candidates, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren, both called for this during their, uh, their presidential campaigns. And so uh, Biden has not, and uh, there's substantial question over whether he will, but if he's looking at these two vice presidential candidates, and he knows, and he's talked about uh, how we have to make cheaper treatment of coronavirus, and in fact, make it free, he has said, to individual patients. Well, one way to reduce the cost of that is this program that his, the, the, the people that he's looking at for vice president have already said would be a good idea and is something they would have done as president. So Joe Biden could do this. Joe Biden might do this. Has any other president ever done this? Yes. In fact, it happened in the recent past. So after 9-11, you remember the anthrax scare where uh, this was showing up in newsrooms and, and uh, around the country, and there was an, a, a belief that this might be widespread. There was a drug called Cipro that Bayer produced that was supposed to uh, reverse the effects of anthrax. And initially they said, we're gonna charge a very high price. And George W. Bush's Health and Human Services Secretary, Tommy Thompson said, uh, we're going to use Section 1498, and, and we're going we're to take your patent away. And just the threat of that made Bayer say, okay, we will give this to you for a dollar a pill. So wow. this has been effective in the past, and this is exactly the kind of uh, treatment that you want it to be used for. This is something in the public interest. This is, this is something that's going to be needed in widespread format. 
and 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 this is something frankly that 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 we we could do right now now i've heard that big pharma is a lobbying powerhouse is this true that uh is the case uh i forget the exact number but there is easily more than one lobbyist for every member of Congress uh, if you're talking about the pharmaceutical industry. So they're going to fight this tooth and nail, but the U.S. government has power, and it's power that they should use. New topic, the coming housing crisis. Evictions are about to rise dramatically. Why is that? So in the federal law known as the CARES Act, uh, there was a 120-day moratorium on evictions that involved properties that were federally subsidized in some way. So either Section 8 housing or uh, whether uh, the property has a mortgage that is a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, a FHA, a federal mortgage in some way or another. Uh, that's a partial uh, moratorium, about 25% of all rental properties in the United States. Uh, that's going to end at the end of July. In addition, about 42 states across the country put in their own moratoria on evictions for varying lengths of time. And this is on all rental properties within their particular states. Those are starting to run out. Some have already run out. What this means is that the landlords are in many states uh, are are either now free or will very soon be free to evict tenants that haven't paid their rent. And we never pretty much universally across the United States put any kind of pause or cancellation on rent. So what you saw is a lot of people building up debt for not paying their rent. And now that, that debt is going to come due and uh, landlords take the step of evicting people. In some cases, they ignored the federal and state restrictions and already have started to try to evict people. You could see a real flood of, of pent-up evictions in addition to new evictions and new defaults by renters. And the combination of that is very combustible, especially because uh, we're supposed to be social distancing during a crisis and you, you can't stay at home if you don't have one. What's the politics of this uh, eviction battle right now, who's, who's taking the lead in proposing things that we should do? Well, it's very interesting because we're seeing, I would argue, the largest bottom-up rent strike in American history. We have seen before rent strikes that are targeted at particular landlords for substandard care and treatment of the facility. Uh, and things like that. But now we actually have a movement, a cancel rent movement that is happening all across the country. And of course, this, the, the, the struggles that we're seeing in the pandemic are, are sort of layered on top of an affordable housing crisis that was already in existence well before the pandemic. So uh, this, this movement has been gaining ground even before this. And now with the pandemic, there, there, there is a, a real burst of energy. So you have these housing groups all over the country, in Los Angeles, in New York, in Minneapolis, in Pennsylvania, uh, everywhere, practically, uh, saying, we're not going to pay rent, and we want uh, rent cancellation, and we want to pause on evictions, and, and we want to, to you know, figure out a strategy through the course of this pandemic where people can stay in their homes. 
And what's interesting is that they're getting higher profile buy-in than they ever had before. So I was on uh, a, a strategizing call about this and Jamal Bowman, who uh, uh, it, it looks in all likelihood was victorious and will become the next congressman from the 16th congressional district in New York. He beat Elliot Engel, a 16 term congressman who was the chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, Jamal Bowman appeared on this call and, 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 and showed solidarity with this cancellation of rent movement uh, I, I don't recall many high-profile members of Congress or, or imminent ones uh, showing solidarity of this type. So uh, you're really seeing a more radical politics that's, that's coming to the halls of power, and I think that's an interesting dynamic. No, let's talk for a minute about Jamal Bowman and his apparent uh, victory. This is sort of the, the next AOC, progressive left Democrat overthrowing the party establishment. The role of the Black Caucus, Congressional Caucus in this is pretty interesting. Yeah, the, the CBC actually endorsed Elliot Engel. And Elliot Engel is a, a, a white centrist in a, he was representing a majority minority district, which actually is a very unequal district. It has the Bronx, which is very poor, and also parts of Westchester, which are, are, are very wealthy. Uh, and, and, you know, seemingly Engel was, was more interested in, in, in one part of that, that power structure than the other. But the CBC endorsed Engel over a black progressive, and, and, and they, they did not succeed uh, with that endorsement. And this is a real potential shakeup within the CBC. Uh, this is an organization that traditionally they support incumbents so that incumbents will support them. <laughs> they, they support uh, an, a, an establishment politics that gives them access to the leadership and chairmanships. And they play an inside game very much. And we are now at an outside game moment in our politics. And uh, this is really going to be fascinating to watch to see. I mean, we've already seen it with Ayanna Presley and Ilhan Omar coming into the Black Caucus. But now uh, there are even more reinforcements. People like Mondaire Jones, who also was not endorsed by the CDC, uh, winning a seat that Nita Lowy held up in Westchester County, and also uh, Bowman. And, and perhaps more across the country uh, with a different sort of a different lens on politics than the sort of insider strategy that we've seen from the CBC for so long. And isn't the, the, uh, the chair, the co-chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, Karen Bass, our Karen Bass, who came out of the Community Coalition here in LA, if there ever was a progressive community group, it's Community Coalition. What does Karen Bass have to say about all this? Well, I mean, that, that's a very good question uh, and something I'd like to ask, Karen, because as you say, she comes out of it as an organizer, someone who never thought she would be in, in Congress or in a position of power. She was the first uh, woman of color to ever run a chamber of a state legislature. She's apparently being vetted for vice president. Uh, so Karen Bass is, has now been flung into power, uh, but you know, she has a caucus that traditionally has, has been more on the inside of things than on the outside of things. And, 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 you know, they made their decisions in this race 
accordingly. But, you know, maybe with these reinforcements, Karen Bass will, will, will change that strategy and change that, that, that outlook to something more reminiscent of her past. David Dayan, you can subscribe to his daily update. I do. It's called Unsanitized. You can find it at prospect.org. David, thanks so much for talking with us today. All right, John, thanks. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. It's time to talk about racism in the liberal democratic city of Minneapolis. And for that, we turn to Michelle Goodwin. She's Chancellor's Professor of Law at the University of California, Irvine. She's the founder and director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy and its Reproductive Justice Initiative. She's written all over the place, including for the New York Times, Politico, Salon, Ms. Magazine, and the LA Times. And she's got a new book out. It's called Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Michelle Goodwin, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on your program. Well, you and I have at least three things in common. We're both on the faculty at UC Irvine. We're both on the board of the ACLU of Southern California. And most important, we've both lived in Minneapolis and St. Paul. I went to St. Paul Central High School. So did Philando Castile. And you taught at the University of Minnesota as a distinguished professor of law before coming to the UCI Law School. People think of Minneapolis as one of the most liberal cities in the country. It's, of course, represented in Congress by Ilhan Omar, an immigrant Muslim woman. City votes overwhelmingly Democratic. But we learned from the murder of George Floyd on Memorial Day that the police there are a big problem. You say you know the corner well where George Floyd was killed, Chicago and 38th. That corner of Chicago and 38th was the road so frequently that I traveled on the way to visiting my uncle, Charles Mays, who was a civil rights pioneer himself, served as a field director with the NAACP, was instrumental in helping to lower the voting age. And so as a person who was a civil libertarian himself and a civil rights advocate, that that would be the very corner, a corner that I frequented and in fact frequently drove by even recently as the executive the executor of his estate, uh, really hit me uh, in the gut in a particular way. But of course, it's not just the police in Minneapolis. You wrote recently that when you lived there, you often felt as if you were in a strange sociological experiment. Tell us about that. That's right. So, so I spent a number of years living in the Twin Cities. I moved there from Chicago, which is a dynamic environment. Uh, it is a place that also harbors segregation, but in a very different kind of way. There are communities where Black people have purposely aligned themselves, um, and a 
an area where the racial discourse is, is very dynamic and engaged and so forth. Not that Chicago uh, doesn't have its uh, racial tensions, which clearly it does. We can see that in police violence there, uh, histories of it. Um, but in Minneapolis, I had been told that it would be a cross between Chicago and Seattle. And for its white residents, it is that. I mean, it's a place where one can become lost in the beauty of the nature there. It's pristine in the arts and the theater and as well in the lovely restaurants. But the pervasiveness of racism is absolutely astonishing. And it was like being in a sociological experiment. And I could say that having, you know, been a person who, who studies sociology and is active in sociological organizations. And from the very beginning, whether it was home repair, uh, I was called the N-word by a young repair, repair person who was doing my floors, and in fact, loud enough that my husband could hear it through the receiver. We had to fire people. You know, a plumber came to the house, didn't believe that I was the owner, and then walked right past me looking for the owner of the house and told me that I could be an imposter as if I was a person breaking into my own home and he needed to find a real <laughs> owner. In that instance, uh, when I fired him, his boss called my husband and asked that my husband, who happens to be white, that he would be rehired. And my husband said, of course not, but just the gall of thinking that it could be two white guys that negotiate this past the racist, you know, plumber. And, and that, wasn't, that wasn't it, you know, it was in virtually every aspect of life. And that was what made it so astonishing. And as if being in a sociological experiment, being stopped by the police after leaving yoga classes, um, you know, when going grocery shopping and not being served when white people would come up right after me and be served. And, you know, and when I would, you know, tell managers and whatnot, they would say, oh, that's weird, rather than, well, that's racist and inappropriate. And, you know, I could tell you across myriad <laughs> aspects of shopping, uh, home repair, and even one area that really was astonishing, and it tells you so much about how racism cannot be papered over by class, and even within the context of the kind of um, people who are liberal. I would host events at my home for organizations like the ACLU and others, and frequently when people came to my home, I would be asked... <laughs> by the guests if I could introduce them to the other Michelle, right? The Michelle who actually owned a home, oh, uh, no. not the Michelle who was greeting them at the front door. Man. You know, and so those are the kinds of experiences that, you know, it's not as if black people don't talk about these. It's that in these times they resonate with a greater clarity than in prior times when I know that I shared these comments with colleagues and others. Uh, but I don't know that they necessarily resonated in deep and meaningful ways as the conversations have turned today. Then there's the story of your daughter and the elite private school you put her in. Yes, you know, and schooling is always a challenge. You know, I worked in education before becoming a law professor, and I'm well aware of the implicit and explicit biases 
that attend educating uh, children, particularly children of color in the United States. There's a lot of work that has to be done. And in fact, what I began doing with my daughter early on was to put books together for her school because I realized that for so many teachers, the ways in which they've come to be informed about black children happens to be through stereotype and bias through horror stories that they might hear on the news and ignore the children right in front of them not see them and so i would prepare a book of you know here's my daughter here's my daughter in ballet and rock climbing in mixed matched socks sitting by a pond right to humanize my child and yes, there were experiences, experiences that, um, in fact, at the school, when she first got there, she was told by an instructor that she must be in the wrong classroom because it was a class that was intended for smart people who were smart in math. And he said this in front of a white classmate who was her tour guide. And my daughter reminded him that on the chart that he had, her name was there, so it was the right classroom. And he said, well, you know, no, really, this is, re this is the top class. This is a class intended for the smart students. And he pivoted, and then he asked, well, do you live in a house or an apartment? Now, in New York City, this matters nothing because everybody lives in apartments. But as you know, uh, having lived in uh, Minnesota, when you're asking, do you live in a house or an apartment? It's basically, are you on welfare or do you live in a house that might be owned by your parents? You know, my daughter picked up on these cues and she told me about this experience and I went to the school. Unfortunately, the administration dealt with it fine, but the complications of schooling is that even when you try to find a school where the administration is good, where the administration will respond, that doesn't mean that your child won't experience certain things in the classroom or that your kid won't experience things with students or with parents. And, you know, no matter how much you search and find, you know, you look for the right place, the right combination. And ultimately, for us, it was looking at a place where at least the administration will respond <laughs> when those things happen, as opposed to those things happening and there being crickets, right? It's just no response or what did your child do to bring this onto herself? And so sadly, it was painful, you know, in our case. And I understand she left this elite private school for both her junior and senior years why was that? Yes. Our daughter gained fluency in Chinese. And so for her junior year, she had the opportunity to be in Beijing for her junior year, but she did not want to come back to Minneapolis. And at first, my intuition was that, of course, you come back, you finish, you're the top of your class, be valedictorian, get lots of awards and all of these things, and then go on to college as as young people do. Yes. And really, it was, um, it was seeing the pain in my daughter's eyes and that calling up my own experiences. And I could really think, well, how fair was that to, for my daughter to continue to endure and experience what she had? And so my daughter went to college early and did not come back for her senior year. And I should say something else, too, because, you know, in the Twin Cities area, there are sort of three top, you know, schools, these three elite, and then there are, you know, a couple of, you know, elite public schools and whatnot. And I will tell you that I 
had conversations with and knew other black parents who had similar struggles, whose children were not at my daughter's school. Kids who otherwise would have been leaving high school, going straight on to college, but who had to take gap years, not because they needed to add to their credentials or other things, but because they had been so traumatized by their racialized experiences growing up mm -hmm. and being in high school. I mean, really traumatic stories where teachers were oblivious, where administrations didn't respond. And, you know, over and over again, I mean, in ways, again, that would make you think that you were in a sociological experiment. So how do we fix this? In your article in Ms. Magazine about this, you say, among other things, White Americans need to listen to their friends and co-workers who share their stories. That's what we're doing now, but that's not the only thing. It's a good start. What else? That's that's right. Um, that's you know, I think it's really important to be informed about these histories as well, and then to take action and not leave these matters simply to the people who report and share their stories. You know, what one finds with young people who experience racism in the classroom is that um, they're, they're left on their own. They're the, they're the only voice. No one else speaks up for them or with them. You have administrations that don't respond when teachers act in inappropriate ways. I mean, fortunately, at my daughter's school, when we reported the math teacher, the school took action, and that was great. How horrible if you report something like that and the teacher stays in place, no apology, nothing, right? And, and no one's denying the experience, but that, you know, nothing else takes place. So action is really important, you know, and I know that there are some people who say, well, you know, in areas where there are fewer people of color, these are things that you just have to expect. I disagree with that. I completely disagree with that. I, you know, I, I don't think that one needs more Asian people, indigenous people, or black people in a particular community to be less racist and to be less uh, implicitly or explicitly biased. I don't think so. I mean, I think that we take people from the heart and we treat them as we would want to be treated ourselves. And then there's the the rest of the the list of things we need. Obviously, well, in Minneapolis, they've decided to abolish the police force they have and replace it with something better. Um, they can get that through the legislature, right? So, you know, as we think about these broader matters for society, there are any number of things that we can be doing, right? We can, you know, move beyond just simply being allies to being advocates and actually doing the kind of uh, support work that we would want for ourselves and that we see that have benefited others in our society. When it comes to policing, we need to think about and talk about police unions. There is an abolition uh, movement afoot that recognizes that really we, what we should be looking towards are the appropriate people to respond to the instances that are needed. There are studies that actually show the majority of police work is actually not this kind of chase them down, point your gun and shoot at people. That's like 4% of the work overall. A lot of the other work is that which some people might find mundane, but is actually in, you know, that work that might be behind a desk or um, that work that might be involved in other ways of protecting and serving. But perhaps we need to think more critically 
about where and who responds to what instances. When there are instances that involve someone who's in a mental health crisis, we need people who are trained in mental health crises uh, to appropriately respond to those issues. And, you know, it is not to say that there are times in which there is the need for people who are adept at crisis management. But, you know, being adept at crisis management shouldn't mean that someone is then uh, bulleted, you know, ricocheted with bullets eight times while she's in bed asleep, as in the time of Breonna Taylor's tragic uh, death. Well, we've been talking to you mostly as a parent so far, but you're also, of course, a distinguished professor of law. And I do want to draw on your legal thinking just for a minute. Uh, This issue of tearing down and removing statues, honoring defenders of slavery and treason, especially in the Capitol building in Washington, D.C., House Speaker Nancy Pelosi ordered removing the statues of her predecessors who took up arms against the United States in the Civil War, starting, of course, with Robert E. Lee. We're told there are a total of 11 statues of supporters of treason and slavery in the Capitol's National Statuary Hall collection. But you think there's one more that should come down. Who's that? That's Justice Roger Otani, who was the Chief Justice uh, of the U.S. Supreme Court during the time in which uh, very important matters related to slavery were being debated before the court and decided before the court. One related to the Fugitive Slave Law and another related to um, the case of formerly enslaved or enslaved individuals who then move into free territories, a case in which most people in law all know the Dred Scott opinion and many say was one of the worst decided cases in U.S. history. Justice Taney came from a family uh, that was slaveholding. He had sympathies, very strong sympathies. In fact, probably chief sympathies, really, um, with the South. He did not recuse himself uh, from the court in cases that involved slavery, uh, despite his uh, history, and uh, did not seek to leave the court uh, as the Civil War was uh, amping up. The Dred Scott opinion is notorious. Justice Taney essentially said that uh, it was for Black people's benefit that they were enslaved and that the U.S. would never be a place for Black people to gain any type of citizenship and that uh, Black people were born into a position of servitude and that this was their natural place and should always be their natural place. Uh, prior to the Dred Scott opinion, he also uh, he also concurred quite explicitly in a case that involved fugitive uh, slave laws. Uh, in that case, we know that with the fugitive slave laws, it benefited and further aided slave owners in that they could hire these catchers, these bounty hunters, who would go into states where slavery was abolished, and they would, in fact, kidnap people who had never been enslaved, and they would bring them back south. There were very limited protections for Black people who found themselves in this you know, nightmare of a condition. And with Justice Taney's concurrence in a case that involved this very nature of thing, um, his concurrence made clear that, in fact, there should be 
no further protections for black people who found themselves in this uh, in these situations, and that these laws were intended to protect the interest of slave owners uh, in the South. So, Chief Justice Roger B. Taney yes. wrote the Dred Scott decision in 1857. It held that the rights in the Constitution would never include black people. It's time to remove his statue from the capital of the United States. Michelle Goodwin, her new book is Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Michelle, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me on your show, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk again about TV in the age of the virus. This is News You Can Use, a regular feature of Trump Watch on KPFK in Los Angeles. We can't go to the movie theaters, certainly not on July 4th weekend, so we will be watching stuff at home. And for some advice, we turn again to Ella Taylor. She, of course, is a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Weekly, and at NPR.org. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Thank you, John. Delighted to be here. Well, we want to talk about the big show set against the rise of fascism in Germany. Of course, that's Babylon Berlin. But before we go to the dark side, you have something to recommend that is not dark. It's by the Japanese director, Hirokazu Koreeda. I said it right, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... Uh, I was very skeptical going in because this is an extremely Japanese director who's made a bunch of uh, wonderful dark comedies, I guess you could call them. Um, Nobody Knows, Still Walking, After the Storm, and the recent beautiful film Shoplifters, which was on Netflix for a while, but can now be seen for rent on Hulu and Amazon. I guess it was so successful that they're going to take money for it now. And all of those films are about uh, families. All his films are about uh, single families, except until now they have been families which are uh, lumpen proletariat. The underlying theme is that they have been abandoned and neglected by a Japanese society uh, without a safety net, and they're cobbling together lives in very unusual ways. I really recommend Shoplifters for those who have not seen any of his movies. When I heard that he was going to make a French movie with big stars in it, about an upper-class family, I thought, oh, no, here's another director who is trying to be Francois Truffaut and Louis Mal all wrapped up together. And I could not have been more wrong. This is an upper-crust family that's headed by uh, a diva actress in Paris, and she's played, of course, by Catherine Deneuve, who is wonderful. She has published a memoir called Memories of My Mother, which is an extremely rosified account of her relationship with her mother. 
And her family, of course, uh, it gathers at her house to celebrate the publication of this memoir, ostensibly, <laughs> because in fact, there's going to be a reckoning with her account of things. Her daughter, who's played by Juliette Binoche, who is a friend of Coriada's and who suggested this movie to him actually a while ago, arrives on the scene with a husband in tow. Uh, he's played by Ethan Hawke quite brilliantly. This is an actor who has really come into his own in middle age. And he's playing a second-rate television actor um, <laughs> who's absolutely terrible at, at his job, but um, is a wonderful father to their little girl. Corriere is a marvelous director of children, and little uh, Clementine Grenier um, is just terrific as his very precocious daughter, who is clearly going to be an actress herself one day. But Juliette Binoche's character, Lumia, is not. And by the time when she arrives at the house, a drama begins over who is telling the truth about it's a it's entirely a woman's movie. The interesting thing is that. All the men in it are merely adjuncts. And the funny thing about it is that um, Fabienne, which is Catherine Deneuve's character, all her ex-husbands are involved in this production, which is also being made into a movie. Her current husband cooks and cleans. Uh, one of her previous husbands plays a, is her personal assistant, although he quits in the middle and has to decide whether he's coming back. And there are all the other male characters. Ethan Hawke is very much subservient to Juliette Binoche, but it's all done very subtly. Fabienne, the, the senior actress, is in every sense a, a diva. She's a put-down artist of the, the most virulent kind. Uh, my mother used to say of, of this kind of person that their lung was on their tongue, and that is certainly true <laughs> of her. Um, she's competitive. She's blunt to a fault. She puts everybody down except herself. And the movie is intercut with um, a film set where the memoir is being filmed and it gets corrected along the way, shall we say. <laughs> I don't want to give away too much. And of course, the title of the movie is very tongue-in-cheek. The wonderful thing about the movie is that it has not only many truths um, which end up in a reconciliation of sorts, but there is no exposition whatsoever so that everything you learn about this family's history is uh, contained in the dialogue that goes between them, which, and you really need to be on your toes uh, to interpret it. Now let's turn toward the darkness. The biggest German TV series in history, I read that it was showing in a hundred countries, it's set against the rise of fascism in the late 20s. Of course, that's Babylon Berlin, which just began its third season on Netflix. It's about, I guess you could say, a detective and his assistant. Yes, and it's definitely a binge series. Uh, in fact, uh, all three series are now available for free on Netflix. It's a, a neo-noir detective story, actually. Uh, in some ways, in that sense, it has a very traditional structure, uh, except that it's set in 1929 Berlin uh, during the Weimar Republic, which was kind of an interregnum um, between World War I and World War II. 
but in which the seeds of fascism were stone, sown. <laughs> One of its three creators, it has three creators who each have shot the different episodes from their own point of view. But one of them is Tom Tikva, which listeners may know, whom listeners may know from uh, his very entertaining film, Run, Lola, Run. I loved Run, Lola, Run. Yes. And uh, he also worked on Cloud Atlas, which should probably, over which we must pass in silence. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And has made a number of uh, films, some of them good and some not, but this series is utterly fantastic. I can't recommend it enough. It's enormously ambitious. It's very violent. And I would add that none of the films that I'm going to, that I'm talking about today is for small children in, even for people who are very liberal with what they kill, they let their kids watch. It's very gruesome. Uh, the Berlin that it covers is, is a left-wing bastion actually with the workers movement um, very much on, on the rise. A Germany that's also reeling from World War One. There's a lot of poverty about, and the movie's central character of 127 characters <laughs> um, is a young detective from Köln who moves, who is moved to Berlin for a specific mission that I won't say what it is, and is assigned to the homicide division. He is suffering from what we would now call PTSD. Um, and his fingers shake and he takes an unnamed drug um, that temporarily sets him back to normal. Let's put it this way. He has to use it an awful lot in, in, uh, in all three seasons. And he acquires a sidekick in the unlikely person of a young woman uh, who comes from a deeply impoverished family and moonlights as a prostitute on the side, but it's highly intelligent uh, and ends up attached to the young detective in all sorts of ways. And she is played uh, by a young actress whose name I, I was not familiar to me. It was absolutely terrific. She's a mesmerizing presence in the, in the series. Uh, the young actress is Liv Lisa Fries uh, and ends up playing a, ventra, a, a central role. So on, in season one, you have the workers uh, uprising calling, uh, really, they were Trotskyites and uh, hardcore communists and so on who are um, demonstrating and rioting for uh, social equality. There's also a nascent extreme right that is operating underground. Actually, everything in this movie is underground because the detective is assigned uh, with his young sidekick to uh, the underground, which is rife with um, sex, drugs and crime, all of which we see in in great detail. There are some scenes that uh, harken back a little bit to cabaret because it was also a very fertile period for the arts. Um, There's a lot of cross-dressing and there's some musical sequences were absolutely wonderful. And the whole thing is suffused in this amazing um, light. Uh, Young uh, Detective Rath, uh, the guy is, he answers to a boss, an inspector general called Bruno Volta, absolutely fantastically played by Peter Kurt, who's um, a thuggish, um, fat 
character who loves small children. Are we reminded of anybody? Um, <laughs> but is also also turns out to be a card-carrying member of the nascent uh, extreme right and is an incredibly ruthless, brutal character, which over the three seasons, he becomes an antagonist. There's a kind of a, a political background to, to season three, which is a, a, a terrorist bombing that's being investigated by our protagonist. It's being blamed by some police officers on the communists, but we know it was the work of the fascists. So this is kind of the, the pretext for the investigation. But as you say, a lot of this is not about the communists versus the fascists. A lot of it is about Weimar culture, about the poor people, the rich people, the beautiful sets, the incredible costumes. And as you say, the, the musical numbers, there's a film, they're shooting a film within the film. It's kind of, a, I don't know, I thought of it as kind of Kurt Vile mixed with Busby Berkeley. It's just, it's a, it's a fantastic se uh, yeah. sequence that turns out to have dramatic incident in yeah. it. So there are many different things going on here, but this battle between the communists and the fascists is kind of always present. Yes, and I, I think that, um, I mean, of course, the German film industry, which at that time was extremely vibrant, uh, becomes the setting for season three. I mean, it was pretty much like a second Hollywood. There are enormous amounts of money. There are, uh, it was run by <laughs> criminals and, <laughs> uh, and industrialists. There's a wonderful turn by the actor Lars Eidinger, as Alfred Nyssen, who is a steel manufacturer who, and a, a mama's boy who's a total loser in life, but like many such people, becomes uh, active in the far right. The wonderful thing about it, as you say, is that we know what's coming, but none of the characters, and I repeat, none, is really aware of what is coming. And that's the terrific thing about the series. It makes it extremely timely because it talks about the fragility of democracy and how easily, um, I mean, this is a boom time that is going to fall apart. At, and in fact, at, at the end of the third series, the stock market crashes. Uh, it's manipulated by the... Um, uh, by the steel manufacturer and and many others. It's not a happy ending, to put it mildly. And the other interesting thing about it is that the name Hitler rarely comes up. It's mentioned maybe three times in the whole, uh, in the whole series. This is about what's going on, on on the ground and how easily uh, democracy can be shattered. And as well as being very timely about, you know, the personal is political, um, it's also, uh, it reminds us how fragile our own democracy is and how easily it, it could And of course, everyone watching Babylon Berlin in Europe knows that this is not just a story about the past. The rise of neo-fascism is very much an issue in, in Europe today. Hungary has a neo-fascist government with Viktor Orban, so does Poland. There's neo-fascist parties on the scene in Italy and also in Germany. So, you know, they know that this is history is not dead and that gives it a special you know, free soul, I think. Yes, it, it does. And I, I, the fact that they've chosen to have the the characters discover 
only very slowly and haltingly what's going on, I think uh, makes it both very frightening um, and in all sorts of ways realistic. By the way, the period setting and the, and the cinematography are terrific and it has a, a credit sequence. You know that Netflix always gives you the option to skip the intro. I did not skip it once because <laughs> the stylized credit se sequence is so beautiful. It, it really is lovely. You have one more thing for us, briefly. Yes, a wonderful, if harrowing documentary called Welcome to Chechnya, made by David France, who made How to Survive a Plague, about the brutalization of gays in Chechnya. It's a must-see, um, not a happy-see, but it's a must-see, and it's uh, premiering this week on HBO. So we've been talking about the German series Babylon Berlin. Season three is on Netflix, so we're season one and two. The new Coriata film, The Truth, starring Catherine Deneuve, opens July 3rd, video on demand on various platforms, and the documentary Welcome to Chechnya on HBO. This has been News You Can Use with Ella Taylor, a regular feature of Trump Watch. Thank you, Ella. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.